Hello, Grace Griffins. Today I will be reading for you uh, The Lost Tools of Learning by Dorothy Sayers, published in 1948. That I, whose experience of teaching is extremely limited and whose life of recent years has been almost wholly out of touch with educational circles, should presume to discuss education is a matter, surely, that calls for no apology. It is a kind of behavior to which the present climate of opinion is wholly favorable. Bishops air their opinions about economics, biologists about metaphysics, celibates about matrimony, inorganic chemists about theology. The most irrelevant people are appointed to highly technical ministries, and plain, blunt men write to the papers to say that Epstein and Picasso do not know how to draw. Up to a certain point, and provided that the criticisms are made with a reasonable modesty, these activities are commendable. Too much specialization is not a good thing. There is also one excellent reason why the veriest amateur may feel entitled to have an opinion about education. For if we are not all professional teachers, we have all, at some time or another, been taught, even if we learnt nothing, perhaps in particular if we learnt nothing. Our contribution to the discussion may have a potential value. Without apology, then, I will begin, but since... Much that I have to say is highly controversial. It will be pleasant to start with a proposition with which I feel confident all teachers will cordially agree, and that is that they all work much too hard and have far too many things to do. Amen. One has only to look at any school or examination syllabus to see that it is cluttered up with a great variety of exhausting subjects which they are called upon to teach and the teaching of which sadly interferes with what every thoughtful mind will allow to be their proper duties, such as distributing milk, supervising meals, taking cloakroom duty, weighing and measuring pupils, keeping their eyes open for incipient mumps, measles, and chickenpox, making out lists, escorting parties around the Victoria and Albert Museum, filling up forms, interviewing parents, and devising end-of-term reports which shall combine a deep veneration for truth with a tender respect for the feeling of all concerned. Upon these really important duties I will not enlarge. I propose only to deal with the subject of teaching, properly so called. I want to inquire whether, amid all the uh, multitudinous subjects which figure in the syllabuses, we are really teaching the right things in the right way, and whether by teaching fewer things differently, we might not succeed in shedding the load, as the fashionable phrase goes, and at the same time produce a better result. This prospect need arouse neither hope nor alarm. It is in the highest degree improbable that the reforms I propose will ever be carried into effect. Neither the parents, nor the training colleagues, nor the examination boards, nor the boards of governors, nor the Ministry of Education would countenance them for a moment, for they amount to this that if we are to produce a society of educated people fitted to preserve their intellectual freedom amid the complex pressure of our modern society, we must turn back the wheel of progress some four or five hundred years to the point at which education began to lose sight of its true object towards the end of the Middle Ages. Before you dismiss me with the appropriate phrase, reactionary, romantic, medievalist, louder temporis acti, or whatever tag comes first to hand, I will ask you to consider one or two miscellaneous questions that hang about at the, at the back, perhaps of all of our minds, and occasionally pop out to worry us. 
When we think about the remarkably early age at which the young men went up to the university in, let's say, Tudor times, and thereafter were held fit to assume responsibility for the conduct of their own affairs, are we altogether comfortable about that artificial prolongation of an intellectual childhood and adolescent into, adolescence into the years of physical maturity, which is so marked in our day? To postpone the acceptance of responsibility to a late date brings with it a number of psychological complications, which, while they may interest the psychiatrist, are scarcely beneficial either to the individual or to society. The stock argument in favor of postponing the school leaving age and prolonging the period of education generally is that there is now so much more to learn than there was in the Middle Ages. This is partly true, but not wholly. The modern boy and girl are certainly taught more subjects, but does that always mean that they are actually more learned and no more? That is the very point which we are going to consider. Has it ever struck you as odd or unfortunate that today, when the proportion of literacy th throughout Western Europe is higher than it has ever been, people should have become susceptible to the influence of advertisement and mass propaganda to an extent hitherto unheard of and unimagined? Do you put this down to the mere mechanical fact that the press and the radio and so on have made propaganda much easier to distribute over a wide area? Or do you sometimes have an uneasy suspicion that the product of modern educational methods is less good than he or she might be at uh, disentangling fact from opinion and the proven from the plausible? Have you ever, in listening to a debate among adult and presumably responsible people, been fretted by the extraordinary inability of the average debater to speak to the question or to meet and refute the arguments of speakers on the other side? Or have you ever pondered upon the extremely high incidence of irrelevant matter which crops up at committee meetings? and upon that very great rarity of persons capable of acting as chairman of committees. And when you think of this, and think that most of our public affairs are settled by debates and committees, have you ever felt a certain sinking of the heart? Have you ever followed a discussion in the newspapers or elsewhere, and noticed how frequently writers fail to define the terms they use, or how often, if one man does define his terms, another will assume in his reply that he was using the terms in precisely the opposite sense to that in which he has already defined them? Have you ever been faintly troubled by the amount of slipshod syntax going about? And if so, are you troubled because it is inelegant or because it may lead to dangerous misunderstandings? Do you ever find that young people, when they have left school, not only forget most of what they have learned, that is only to be expected, but forget also or betray that they have never really known how to tackle a new subject for themselves? Are you often bothered by coming across grown-up men and women who seem unable to distinguish between a book that is sound, scholarly, and properly documented, and one that is, to any trained eye, very conspicuously none of these things? Or who cannot handle a library catalog? or who, when faced with a book or reference, betray a curious inability to extract from it the passages relevant to the particular question which interests them? Do you often come across people for whom all their lives a subject remains a subject, divided by watertight bulkheads from all other subjects, so that they experience very great difficulty in making 
an immediate mental connection between, let's say, algebra and detective fiction, sewage disposal and the price of salmon, cellulose and the distribution of rainfall, or more generally between such spheres of knowledge as philosophy and economics, or chemistry and art. Are you occasionally perturbed by the things written by adult men and women for adult men and women to read? Here, for instance, is a quotation from an evening paper in reference to the visit of an Indian girl to this country. Miss Boschel has a perfect command of English. Oh gosh, she said once, in a marked enthusiasm for London. Well, we may all talk nonsense in a moment of inattention. It is more alarming when we find a well-known biologist writing in a weekly paper to the effect that it is an argument against the existence of a creator. I think he put it more strongly, but since I have most unfortunately mislaid the reference, I will put this claim at its lowest. Unquote, an argument against the existence of a creator that the same kind of variations which are produced by natural selections, na natural selection can be produced at will by stock breeders. End quote. One might feel tempted to say that it is rather, it is rather an argument for the existence of a creator. Actually, of course, it is neither. All, all it proves is that the same material causes, recombination of the chromosomes by crossbreeding and so forth, are sufficient to account for all observed variations. Just as the various combinations of the, th the same 13 semitones are materially sufficient to account for Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata, and the noise the cat makes by walking on the keys. But the cat's performance neither proves nor disproves the existence of Beethoven. And all that is proved by the biologist's argument is that he was unable to distinguish between a material and final cause. Here is a sentence from no less academic a source than a front-page article in Time's Literary Supplement. Quote, the Frenchman, Alfred Epinos, pointed out that certain species, example, ants and wasps, can only face the horrors of life and death in association. I do not know what the Frenchman actually did say. What the Englishman says, he said, is patently meaningless. He cannot know whether life holds any horror for the ant, nor in what sense the isolated wasp, which you kill upon the window pane, can be said to face or not to face the horrors of death. The subject of the article is mass behavior in man, and the human motives have been unobtrusively transferred from the main proposition to the supporting instance. Thus the argument, in effect, assumes what it sets out to prove, a fact which would become immediately apparent if it were present, presented in a formal syllogism. This is only a small and haphazard example of a vice which pervades whole books, particularly books written by men of science or metaphysical subjects. Another quotation from the same issue of the TLS comes in fittingly here to wind up this random collection of disquieting thoughts. This time from a review of Sir Richard Livingston's Some Tasks for Education, quote, more than once the reader is reminded of the value of an intensive study of at least one subject so as to learn, quote, the meaning of knowledge, end quote, and what precision and persistence is needed to attain it. Yet there is elsewhere full recognition of the distressing fact that a man may be master in one field and show no better judgment than his neighbor anywhere else. He remembers what he has learned, but forgets altogether how he learned it, 
end quote. I would draw your attention particularly to the last sentence, which offers an explanation of what the writer rightly calls the distressing fact that the intellectual skills bestowed upon us by our education are not readily readily transfer transferable to subjects other than those in which we acquired them. He remembers what he has learned, but forgets altogether how he learned it. Is it not the great defect of our education today, a defect traceable through all the disquieting symptoms of trouble that I have mentioned, that although we often succeed in teaching our pupils subjects, we fail lamentably on the whole in teaching them how to think. They learn everything except the art of learning. It is as though we had taught a child mechanically and by rule of thumb to play the harmonious blacksmith upon the piano, but had never taught him the scale or how to read music, so that having memorized the harmonious blacksmith, he still had not the faintest notion how to proceed from that to tackle the last rose of summer. Why do I say as though? In certain of the arts and crafts, we sometimes do precisely this, requiring a child to express himself in paint before we teach him how to handle the colors and the brush. There is a school of thought which believes this to be the right way to set about the job. But observe, it is not the way in which a trained craftsman will go about to teach himself a new medium. He, having learned by experience the best way to economize labor and take the thing by the right end, will start off by doodling about on an odd piece of material in order to give himself the feel of the tool. This is the end of part one of our three-part series. Uh, Thank you so much for your time. Look for part two to be released next Saturday and then part three to be released the Saturday after that. Once again, thank you so much for your time.